So if you please turn your Bibles to the book of Acts, we are in chapter 9. We're going to be looking at the first nine verses in chapter 9. That's found on page 917 in the Pew Bible. And today we come to one of the most well-known passages in Acts, and, and perhaps one of the most important uh, passages in all of Scripture. Today we see the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, of the Apostle Paul, on the road to Damascus. And Paul is the main character in the second half of the, the book of Acts. From chapter 13 on, it's almost entirely about Paul. Paul has written nearly half of the New Testament books. And other than Jesus himself, I think the Apostle Paul is the single most influential person in all of Christianity. Well, today we hear how this chief persecutor of Christianity had become its chief proponent. So Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, hear now the word of the Lord. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters, asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this account written in the book of Acts. This conversion of a, of a man who was so far from you, who was persecuting the church, killing your people. But you've changed and you made him the apostle to the Gentiles. And Father, we pray, Lord, for your grace to be with us. I pray, Lord, that your grace will be with me as I am preaching. Lord, that I will preach your truth, your word with the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, open our hearts to hear from you, and Lord, I pray that we will have a, a, an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, that we will see him more, know him better, be more conformed to his image. It's for his glory and his name we pray. Amen. Well, I was about eight years old visiting my, my grandparents who lived in New York City, and even as a kid, especially if we watched the local news, which my grandfather did religiously every night, I could sense the terror that gripped the city in the early summer of 1977. For nearly a year, a serial killer known as the 44 caliber killer, or the son of Sam, terrorized New Yorkers through a series of totally random shootings resulting in multiple fatalities. And the killer, a man named David Berkowitz, was arrested in August of 1977. And he pleaded guilty to six murders and several attempted murders. One of his victims, he left a paraplegic. Another, he left blind. And Berkowitz had been involved in the occult. He had been involved in Satan worship. Actually, the, the name Son of Sam, it came from a note that he left at one of the crime scenes where he claimed, among other things, to be Beelzebub, a demon. He claimed to be the son of Samhain, which was a druid demon that Berkowitz was praying to as part of his satanic worship. 
He claimed to be possessed by demons when he committed these crimes. And his sentencing hearing actually had to be delayed because of multiple outbursts that he would have in court. He would scream, I'll kill them all again. Now, needless to say, he was convicted, convicted to six consecutive life sentences. He was convicted to 365 years in prison. And during the first 10 years of his sentence, Berkowitz was attacked by other inmates, nearly killed multiple times. And for his own security, he had to be moved around to different facilities around New York State to keep from being, to being harmed. Uh, they had to keep him in solitary <clears throat> confinement, again, for his own protection. He, he wasn't safe in the general prison population because the people wanted to kill him. And because of all this, he suffered from extreme depression, despair. He said that he was suicidal during this time. Then in 1987, he was given brief time out of solitary confinement and had interaction with a few other inmates. A fellow inmate who was a Christian handed Berkowitz one of those small uh, pocket New Testaments right here these, that the Gideons have, handed him one of these and urged him to read through the Psalms. Berkowitz was Jewish. He said, read through the, the, the Jewish Psalms. And at first, Berkowitz mocked the man, but you don't have a lot to do in prison, so he was sitting in, in, in his cell. He began to read. And one night he was reading Psalm 34, and he came upon verse 6, which says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all of his troubles. And Berkowitz then wrote, It was at that moment in 1987 that I began to pour out my heart to God. Everything seemed to hit me at once. The guilt of what I had done and the disgust at what I had become. Late that night in my cold cell, I got down on my knees and began to cry to Jesus Christ. I told him that I was sick and tired of doing evil. I asked Jesus to forgive me for all my sins. I spent a good time while on my knees praying to him. When I got up, it felt as if a heavy but invisible chain that had been around me for so many years was broken. A peace flooded over me. I did not understand what was happening. In my heart, I just knew that somehow my life was going to be different. In 1999, Berkowitz wrote, More than 11 years have gone by since I had first talked with the Lord. So many good things have happened in my life since. Jesus Christ has allowed me to start an outreach ministry right here in the prison, where I have been given permission by prison officials to work in the special needs unit. This is where men who have various emotional and coping problems are housed. I can pray with them as we read our Bibles together. I get the chance to show them a lot of brotherly love and compassion. I've worked as chaplain, clerk, and also have a letter-writing ministry. He also reached out to the victims and the families of those that he killed, apologizing for his crime. And some, not all, but some, have forgiven him. And to this day, nearly 37 years after his conversion, Berkowitz is proclaiming Christ and serving his fellow inmates in the prison where he expects to spend the rest of his life. And this is just one of thousands, of tens of thousands, of hundreds of thousands of stories of how Christ radically transforms lives. A few days ago, I, I saw a video which I, I posted on Facebook, which was a reaction to the, the Super Bowl ad, the, the He Gets Us ads, it's called He Saves Us. And in this ad, there are pictures of multiple peoples whose lives have been radically transformed by Christ. They have a former witch, 
a former atheist apologist, a former Islamic jihadist, a former KKK member, a former drug addict, a former gang leader, a former drag queen, a former abortion doctor, a former porn star, a former gay rights activist. And it says at the end, Jesus doesn't just get us, he saves us. He saves us. And when Jesus saves us, he changes us. We are radically transformed and we become a new creation in Christ. And these stories are, are really scandalous. They really are. See, good people don't like these stories. We don't want someone like David Berkowitz to be saved. I mean, that, that, we, we want good people to be saved, but someone like David Berkowitz, that goes beyond the pale. We want him to burn in hell for the evil that he's done, for the crimes that he's done. And we find that we're very much like the Pharisees that we saw in the gospel reading that Nathan just read for us, that were shocked, shocked that Jesus would have contact with this sinful woman. The sinful woman was most likely a prostitute. But as radical as the conversion of all these people are in the He Saves Us video, or even the conversion of a notorious serial killer like the son of Sam, they're nothing. They're nothing compared to what we read in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, we read of the conversion of the number one enemy, the number one persecutor of the church. This is nothing short of, of mind-boggling. And we're so familiar with the story, I think that we fail to see just how Saul's conversion was simply beyond all comprehension for the first century church. Saul was one of the, the major instigators, if not the ringleader, in the death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. But that wasn't enough for Saul. Saul was the one responsible for the scattering of the church. Acts 8.3 tells us Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. As I mentioned in a previous sermon, what Saul was doing was akin to what we saw the Nazis doing during the Holocaust. When the Nazis would go into people's houses and homes and separate families and send them off to concentration camps and imprison them. And because of Saul's persecution, the church had scattered, had left Jerusalem. But this wasn't, this wasn't good enough for Saul. He wasn't content with them just leaving the capital city. No, Saul was determined to go and hunt them down, the ones who were fleeing, to hunt them down, and then return them to Jerusalem so that they can stand trial and perhaps be executed just like Stephen was. Saul's goal was nothing short of the eradication of all Christians. But God had different plans for Saul. There's not one person in the early church or in, in, in church history who could have saw this coming. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus and his radical transformation, I think, is one of the clearest examples of the supernatural power of the gospel and the validity of Christianity. So as is our customs, what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through this passage verse by verse, looking at this radical transformation of the church's most notorious enemy. Now, we know some of Paul's background from, from later passage in the book of Acts, but also from his letters. We know that, that Paul was a Pharisee. We know that he was a Roman citizen. We know that he was highly educated. He was extremely intelligent. He was zealous for the law. The way I like to describe Paul is he was a whiz kid. He was young. He was aggressive. He was on the fast track. He was going to be somebody. He was a student of Gamaliel. He was the most well-known and most respected uh, rabbi of the time. But Saul was very different than his teacher. 
If you remember from chapter 5 when we studied Gamaliel, Gamaliel's advice to the, to the Jewish council, to the Sanhedrin, was that they, they leave the apostles alone. He said, he said, if this movement is from men, it will die out on its own. But if it's from God, there's no stopping it. And if it's from God, we may find ourselves opposing God. See, Gamaliel's biggest fear was that he would oppose God. See, he was wise. He didn't trust his own understanding of the situation. And there was a humility in Gamaliel. There was a wisdom in him that we don't find in his young and zealous student. See, Saul, what he did is he confused his own pride, his own ambition, his own zeal. He confused this with devotion to God. And we can see this in the first words of chapter 1. First verse says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Breathing, breathing threats and murder. This doesn't describe a person filled with the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, compare Saul's composure with that we read about Stephen. Stephen, the man who Saul was complicit in murdering. <clears throat> Stephen, while he was being unjustly stoned to death, remember how it described it? It describes his face like the, he looked like the face of an angel. He had this supernatural peace that filled him. Far from being filled with, with hatred and rage, as we see in Saul, Stephen actually prays for those who are murdering him. He prayed that the Lord would not hold their sin against them and that, that they would be forgiven. And this is a prayer that is actually being answered in this very chapter that we're reading. Now Saul's disposition is the exact opposite. Saul's disposition seems more demonic than godly. But Saul's hatred is, is, is not demonstrated simply in, in blind rage. It's far more dangerous, far more dangerous. See, Saul is disciplined and he's extremely intelligent, which makes him a, a very formidable adversary. Verses 1 and 2 say that he went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is, any Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. See, Saul knows how to use the system against the disciples. See, these letters, these letters would give Saul formal legal authority to compel those in the synagogues. So the people in the synagogues may not be opposed to the Christians, but they're going to have these letters that are going to compel them to give them up and to, to comply with uh, Saul's demands. And he'd have even the, the power of the uh, Jewish authorities and the Romans to enforce it if necessary. Very dangerous. But notice that Saul's not simply defending Jerusalem. He's not defending the sacred city or, or defending the temple where the, where the apostles previously had been preaching. We might, we might be able to understand this. He may have considered it blasphemous to preach about Jesus in these sacred spaces. But this is not what Saul is doing. Saul is pursuing them. He's going after them. And he's leaving the Jewish areas. He's going into Gentile areas. Where Saul is going, there were far worse movements from a Jewish perspective than the Christians were. But Saul's not going after the pagans. He's not going after the idolaters. What he's doing, he's going after the Christians. And I think this, again, is further evidence of the demonic origin of Saul's fervor. I was in a church at one time, and this church was, was, was at one time it was a, a solid church, Bible-believing church, but the church had been degrading, and, and its, its theology had been, been compromising with the world. And this church would not, would not practice church discipline on blatant heresy. There were, there were leaders in this church who would deny the deity of Christ, who would deny the Trinity, who would deny the resurrection. There was never any, any uh, discipline against them. You know who faced the discipline? 
to faithful congregations, those who would hold to only male leadership in the church, who opposed female priests in the church, those who uphold biblical marriage, those who, who were upholding the inerrancy of Scripture. Those are the ones the church leaders would go after and would oppose. And they would go after them, they would take their church property away. I remember one instance in particular that the congregation that built the church, that paid for the church, that was faithful, was kicked out. They wanted to buy their church back. And, the, and this denomination would not even sell it back to them. They actually would rather sell it to become a mosque than sell it to the congregation. This is evil. This is evil that we see. And this is what Saul was doing. And notice that Saul's not only just going after the leaders, the apostles. Right? They were still in Jerusalem. He could have gotten them at any time. He was going after not only the men, he was going after men and women, and probably even children as well. And this effort is meant to terrorize. That's what he's doing. He's trying to terrorize the church. This is an evil man that we see here. This is the last person we would expect the Lord to use to become the church's greatest missionary. But it's in verse 3. It's in verse 3 where we see the Lord act. It's here that, that the Lord gets the attention of this arrogant whiz kid. See, Saul wasn't impressed with the miracles done by the apostles in Jerusalem. He wasn't impressed by speaking in tongues or healing or supernatural generosity that we read about in the early church. He was not impressed with the eloquence of Stephen as he recalled the history of God's people. Saul didn't even recognize the supernatural peace and grace given to him, the calm, the, the face of an angel that Stephen had displayed by Stephen as he's being murdered. He didn't appreciate the grace that Stephen shows and the mercy by forgiving those who are killing him. See, Saul is, is arrogant. Saul only recognizes power. He's like an arrogant teenager that, that, that doesn't even know what he doesn't know. See, he has this tremendous raw intellect, but he has no wisdom. He has no grace. He has no common sense. He's blind to the Holy Spirit's work in the apostles, the Holy Spirit's work in Stephen, even in his own teacher, Gamaliel. Saul only respects raw power. So that's what God shows him. In verse 3, God shows Saul raw power. He gets Saul's attention in a big way. He completely overwhelms him and he humbles him. Verse 3, it says, Now as he went on his way, he, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone all around him. We're told later in Acts when Paul retells this account that the light was brighter than the sun. That's how he describes it, brighter than the sun. See, Saul needed to be put into his place. And I frequently use this illustration where I compare people to light bulbs. And I say we have different gifting. The Lord gives us different abilities and different gifts. And some of us are little pen lights, you know, five-watt light bulbs. Some of us are 10 watts. <clears throat> some might be 20 watts. There might be a few that are 100-watt light bulbs. Well, if you put Saul here, Saul was the best of the best. Saul, Saul was like, a, like one of those 2,000-watt football stadium floodlights. That's what Saul was. But remember in the analogy, I, I say that there may be a great difference, relative difference among the abilities of different people, right? There's a great difference between that little, that little pen light, that one lot, watt pen light and a 2,000 watt stadium light. But when they compare it to the sun, you won't even see it. It's negligible. It's no different. The, the, the stadium light looks as, as, as dull as the pen light. And that's what we're seeing here. This is what God needed to do to Saul. God shows Saul. He, he says, compared to himself, little whiz kid Saul is nothing. Nothing, absolutely nothing. And what this light does is it completely overwhelms Saul. It knocks him to the ground. It blinds him. 
And then we get another surprise. In verse 4, Saul hears these words. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? A couple things to, to notice about this short question here. The first thing is notice that the address is personal. See, this force that, that completely overwhelms, it's not a blind force of nature. This is not like Saul is being crushed by a tornado or tossed about by an earthquake. No. This force knows Saul. It knows his name and it directly addresses him by name. But even that's not all of it. This repetition of the name in Hebrew, when you say a name, Saul, Saul, what this indicates is an intimacy. This is like dear Saul. This, this is showing that, that he knows Saul personally and intimately. See, God is not acting here as Saul's enemy. He's actually his friend. And this intimacy to which Saul is addressed really intensifies the question that's being asked. So even though God completely overwhelms Saul to get his attention, the question that he asks is, is actually tender. It's not threatening. It's not meant to crush Saul by, or force him into compliance. Rather, it's meant for Saul to, to feel the, the weight of his sin. It's meant to bring him to the tears of, of repentance, not fill him with horror and terror. It's like the Lord is saying, my dear friend Saul, why? Why are you treating me this way? Why are you returning evil for the good that I have done for you? Another thing to notice here is, is how tightly the, the Lord associates himself with his people. Technically, Saul was not persecuting Jesus. Right? Jesus had already ascended into heaven at this time. And there's no evidence that Saul or Paul had ever met Jesus during his earthly ministry. The persecution of which Jesus speaks is the persecution that, that Saul is conducting against Christ's church, against Christ's people. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Whatsoever you do to the least of these, my brothers, that you do unto me. And this, this should at, at the same time be both comforting and, and terrifying to us, if you think about it. Comforting knowing that Jesus so identifies with us as his people that an offense against us will be seen as an offense against him. But it should also terrify us when we think about just how poorly we often treat other brothers and sisters in Christ, thinking that this is the way we're treating the Lord himself. In verse 5, Saul responds. He says, who are you, Lord? And I think at this point, Saul is humbled. I think he recognized that he is in the presence of the true God. He recognized that this voice speaking to him is that of the Lord. But perhaps for the first time in Saul's life, Saul actually questions his own understandings. He questions his own presuppositions. And he asks a genuine question. See, Saul's no longer the, the know-it-all. Here, now he is ready to learn. Learn something that he didn't know. Now he is ready to learn about grace. Learn about mercy. Saul is now open to hearing the truth. And Jesus graciously responds. He responds to Saul by giving him the information that he lacks. And he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And Jesus always answers, always answers sincere questions. If we come to him asking a sincere question, he will not throw us away. He will not push us away. He will answer us. It's when we're insincere. It's when we're asking in order to, to push an agenda not really wanting an answer, but really wanting to, to reinforce our own viewpoint. It's then that the Lord is silent. In verse 6, Jesus tells Saul what he wants him to do. See, Jesus does not reveal much of his plan to him. But I think this is, this is a test. Will Saul be obedient with a, with a little that's revealed? So what's revealed? 
Jesus says in verse 6, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. And I think this is a test of, of Saul's humility. Will he simply comply or will he question it? See, it's like, a, you know, if, you're, if you're ever taught smart but an arrogant child, right? They're always wanting to know why. You tell them something. They say, why? 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 You tell them it's not good enough that you told them that. They continually want to know why. It's like you have to, they won't listen unless you can somehow convince them that it's the right thing to do. What they're doing is they're setting themselves up as the judge. To say, if you can give me enough evidence, then I'll believe you, but not until then. <clears throat> My friends, God does not play that game with us. He does not have to justify himself. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's when we first submit to God, it's only then, only then that we can understand him and understand him better. See, he reveals himself and he reveals his will only to those who trust him and obey him. See, God doesn't sell himself to us. He doesn't try to convince us. And then we, we uh, understand, we, we make a decision whether or not we're, he gave us enough inf- information. No. We obey. And when we obey, then we understand. Not before. And as long as we rebel against God, holding on to the illusion, the illusion of our personal autonomy, that we somehow sit above God, that we sit in judgment of him, we'll never hear his voice. We'll never hear. We'll never believe. Verse 7 shows the contrast between Saul and the men with him. Verse 7 says, The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. See, the Lord here was specifically speaking to Saul. The Lord made Saul able to hear the message. This grace was not given to the men around him, but was only given to Saul. See, God and God alone is the one who is sovereign. God and God alone is the one who initiates contact. He is the one who comes to us. We do not come to him. Verse 8. Verse 8 says, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. We see here a further humbling of the wisket. He is struck blind on the road to Damascus. See, not only is he unable now to lead an offensive against the church in Damascus, he is not even able to walk to Damascus on his own. He must be led by the hand. He is like an invalid at this point. And notice this blindness affected only Saul. The other men were not blinded, or else they would not have been able to lead him by the hand. And this was a real, physical, true blindness. But it's also symbolic. It's also symbolic meaning as well. See, for all of Saul's intelligence and his education, he was in reality blind to God, blind to the ways of God. He was blind to God's working through the miracles done in the apostles in in Jerusalem. He was blind to the Holy Spirit's presence in Stephen, both during his sermon and when he was being stoned to death. He was blind to the fact that Satan was using Saul's God-given gifts, his education, his, his intelligence, his zeal for the Lord. He was using all these gifts directly to oppose God and to oppose his church. And these days where Saul was physically blind, I think these are a parable of the spiritual blindness that he suffered, that he suffered from. And God left Saul in this state for three days, as we see in verse 9. It says, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So three days of darkness Three days with no food, no water. 
I can't help but wonder if this too is symbolic. Right? Jonah spent three days in the belly of the fish. Jesus spent three days in the tomb. Were these three days of darkness, the death of the arrogant, legalistic persecutor of the church and the rebirth of the great apostle and missionary? As we'll see in the rest of the chapter, Saul is radically transformed by this encounter with Jesus. It's nothing short of a death and resurrection, a rebirth situation. And this type of radical transformation is only possible through Christ. It is only possible through the amazing grace of the gospel. But it's interesting. It's interesting that our culture is both fascinated by and repulsed by grace. I think we're fascinated by grace and, and, and redemption that we see here, by the fact that we attempt to counterfeit it many times. I mean, think of literature. Literature is littered with examples of this counterfeit transformation. <clears throat> I'm just going to give one example. Think of the Dr. Seuss story, how the Grinch stole Christmas. I'm sure all of you know that. The Grinch is this miserable creature that hates everyone, hates everything, even hates his own dog. He hatches this, this plan that he's going to steal Christmas. The way he's going to steal Christmas is by stealing all the presents that the Who's have in Who'sville. But then the, the Grinch changes, right? His heart grows. His heart grows three sizes. That's what we see. And the, the Grinch then becomes, he completely changes. He, he gives all the, the presents back, and he becomes a model citizen. He even carves the roast beast for the Who's at the, at the town dinner. So the question is, what caused the change? What was the cause of the Grinch becoming different? It was hearing the Who's singing. That's, that's what we see in the, in the shower reading the book. They're happy. Even though they don't have any presents, they're still singing. And this is what changes his heart. Now the question is, is this realistic? Do you, is it, would this really happen? Would a hard-hearted, evil Grinch change into this loving, joyful, model citizen simply because of hearing some singing? No, not at all. We see another example. Classic... Uh, um, Dickens' Christmas Carol, right? Ebenezer Scrooge, the miserly, miserable man is, is transformed into this generous, Christmas-loving helper of all. And how it's done, he had visits by three spirits, right? Is that realistic? No. But because we're made in God's image, we are drawn to these stories of redemption. But because we're rebellious against God, we refuse to look to the only source and we make up other sources like the who's singing or, or getting visits by the ghost of Christmas past and, and having nostalgia and that's what's going to change it. That doesn't work. Only one thing changes us and that is Christ. There's only one place that this type of transformation can take place and it's in Christ. It's a supernatural transformation. It's Christ and Christ alone. <clears throat> and I think what these counterfeits show us is there a way for us to attempt to domesticate God we attempt to make redemption something that we can manage, that's something that we can control. If we have just the right feelings, if, we, if we're just nice to people, somehow that will make this redemption and cause this type of supernatural transformation, this radical transformation. It doesn't work. And these counterfeits don't only apply to literature or entertainment. They're also seen in this nearly universal desire that we have to make the world a, a better place whether it's through social justice or ending poverty or, or ending inequality or improving education or, or fighting climate change or any other type of cause you want to have. We want to make the world a better place. And the reason why we do this is because we're made in God's image. It's natural. 
We have a desire to make this world better. This is, this is the charge you hear. If you ever go to a graduation, the charge is to high school, to college graduates. You are the ones who are going to make the world a better place. Go out and make the world a better place. The question is, is it working? I doubt it. <clears throat> Here's the really ironic thing. Saul of Tarsus thought that he was making the world a better place by opposing what he thought was heresy. The Jewish leaders thought they were making the world a better place by, by appeasing the Romans so that they can carry on with their religious traditions. See, when we look to ourselves rather than God for our standard of right and wrong, we can justify whatever we want to do in, in the name of making the world a better place. Here's a really strange thing, a really ironic thing. The Nazis thought they were making the world a better place when according to their warped Darwinistic worldview, they were ridding the world of those they considered inferior and simply bringing about the next step in human evolution. See, we all try to do it, make excuses. And we're fascinated. We're fascinated by redemption. And this is why we seek to control it and manipulate it. But true redemption, the radical transformation that we see in Saul of Tarsus, this is only possible through Jesus Christ. All other attempts at redemption or, or making the world a better place are ultimately counterfeit, are ultimately futile. And we are simultaneously fascinated and repulsed by redemption. We are repulsed by true redemption, true redemption in Christ, because this is scandalous, because it's all of God, because it insults our pride. It insults our, just, our, our sense of justice, our, our sense of feeling superior to someone else. See, we like redemption in the abstract. But when it comes to those we think that we're better than, that we think that are not worthy, then we don't like it at all. When we hear someone like David Berkowitz, we don't like that at all. When we see someone like the sinful woman that the Pharisees see, we don't like that at all. We think that these people are unworthy. They are beyond the pale, beyond... Redemption. But you know what the truth is? We are all in that situation. We are all unworthy. We are all lost. From the most depraved to the most self-righteous. See, while the difference on a human level may be great, like the, like the light bulbs, but from God's perspective, the difference is negligible. Again, here's something that's probably going to be offensive to some of you. You take the most righteous person who ever lived, and let's say for argue, sake of argument, let's say that was Mother Teresa. And you take the worst person who ever lived, you know that's going to be Hitler, right? So you put Hitler on there. The difference between them is negligible. The difference between us and Hitler is negligible when compared to God's grace. And that is why we must be humble. We must never to, to cease to be amazed by grace. Never be, cease to be amazed by this radical transformation seen in those who surrender to Christ. And this radical transformation is only possible in Christ. It is only seen in those who belong to Christ. But it is seen in all who belong to Christ. So our application is simple. Our application is to live. Live as those who have been radically transformed by grace. And then to share this grace. To share the gospel with those who have not yet experienced this radical transformation. That is our call. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you for this example given of the Apostle Paul, the radical grace that was given to him, that transformed him. But it's no different than, than is given to each one of us. Amazing grace that saves a wretch like me. Lord, I pray for each one of us. If there are any here, anyone who hears my voice who don't recognize their own wretchedness apart from Christ, I pray you will change that. 
and you'll open our eyes to see what we truly are in your sight. But don't leave us there. Then show us that we may be, we may be wretched sinners, but we have an awesome, an amazing God. As we, as we sung, our sins, there are many, but his mercy, his mercy is so much more. So, Father, I pray that we will see, that we will experience that, and that we will live. We will live as those who have been transformed by grace. And, Lord, we pray that you will be glorified. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.